The All Souls Forum is a production of the Unitarian Universalist Church at 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, Missouri. Each week they present a public forum whose mission is to deal with significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values of the contemporary world and to promote critical thinking. So, without further ado, here is this week's production of the All Souls Forum. Good morning. My name is Craig Vollen. I'm a member of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Forum Committee. Welcome to the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church Forum. The forum's mission is to afford a platform for the discussion of significant issues, especially those that involve ethical values in the contemporary world, and to promote critical thinking. And we've been doing this since 1943. Uh, this morning, we have two fine speakers on a very important topic. That's Anne Mesley and Judy Morgan. They are on the board of Jackson County Children's Services Fund. Uh, and we'll talk about how the fund and its partners combine care, connections, and creativity to provide hope against child poverty, abuse, neglect uh, by promoting children's mental health and social-emotional well-being, a very important subject. I think we're going to start with Judy. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. I'll first tell you just a little bit about myself, and then uh, I'm going to talk sort of more in general about the needs of children, and most of these needs are needs that the Children's Service Fund actually attends to. Uh, the fund does have, it's, it's, a, it's in statute, Missouri statute, so it does have certain particular needs that they meet for children. They aren't all the needs, but there are a great many of them. So, and Anne's going to speak specifically about the Children's Service Fund and what it does. And I'm going to speak more generally about needs of children in general. But I've actually had uh, three careers in my life. I was a teacher and counselor in the Kansas City Public Schools for 29 years. Uh, I was a teacher at Central High School and, and then North, at, at Lincoln Academy, Lincoln College Prep Academy. And then I got my master's in counseling and I became a, a counselor at Northeast High School. Uh, I had always see somebody. Did you go to Northeast? Oh, great! <laughs> they have a they have a, they had a great alumni association when I was there, um, and then I was, had been very active in my union during all of those years. So I uh, I ran for president of the teachers union in the Kansas, Kansas City Public Schools. I did that. I, I taught and was a counselor for twenty nine years, union president ten years, and then I thought I was retiring. Because uh, the union presidency about killed me. It was a very difficult job. And I finally just said I wore out and I just couldn't do it anymore. And uh, then a couple of years later, my state representative, who was Jean Peters Baker, resigned because she got a appointed our prosecutor, which she, I think, is doing a an amazing job. And so some of a couple of my friends said, why don't you try to get that position? It would be a special election. And I was like, I don't even like Jeff City. Why would I want to go down there five months of the year, you know? But they talked me into it, and they basically kind of harassed me into doing it. 
And so I decided to try it. I thought, well, I'm not sure if I'm going to like this, but I ended up liking it. So I was state representative for nine years, and now I am now I am fully retired. So um, in retirement, I'm doing a lot of volunteer stuff. And I think it was last, yeah, about this time last year, I got a call from two of my friends, Laura Loic, her last name's very hard to say, Loicno and Todd Patterson, and they were running the campaign to um, raise the sales tax for the Children's Service Fund to continue it, to raise it from an eighth of a cent to a fourth, and to take away the sunset. And they asked me to be treasurer. And I said, wow, that sounds great. I'd, I'd be happy to do that. So I got to, I kind of got in on the campaign side for a little bit. And I loved working with them. The campaign committee was great. They did a wonderful job. But then in Few months later, I got a call from Jalen Anderson, who's one of our county legislators, and he said, "Judy, would you be willing to uh, come on the Jackson County Merit Commission?" And I didn't know anything about it, so I looked it up and I said, "Yeah, I would." So I called Miriam Hennessy and sent in my resume. She's uh, uh, works in Frank White's office. Well, then she called me a few days later and she said, "Well, Judy, we'd really rather you go on the Children's Service Fund. Would you be willing to do that?" She said. We need somebody because I just moved to the Waldo area. And she said, it's, you know, there's positions are geographically based. And she said, we need somebody from that district. So would you go on the Children's Service Fund? So I said, sure, I'd be glad to. And I have to tell you, I'm so impressed with Anne as the chair. She's amazing. And with our executive director, Rob Witten, they, it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful job they're doing. And it's, it's just wonderful for the children of Jackson County. So with that, I will start talking about the needs of children. So there's physical needs of children and there's psychological needs of children. So one of the physical needs of children, and now we, we have this nice word we call it, we call it food insecurity. But really what it just means is people are hungry. They don't have enough food. And do you know one in seven children in Missouri suffers from hunger? It's one in nine adults and one in seven children. So that's something that our kids are facing. And in, in terms of um, the impact it has on them, it has adverse physical impact, obviously. It's delayed development. It obviously has academic issues. Uh, I think, it, let me see if I can get these statistics up because I looked this up. It's like, I think teachers say 80% of their kids lose the ability to concentrate because they're hungry. This was according to No Kid Hungry. And nearly 60% of children from low-income families say they have come to school on an empty stomach. So this is something that our kids are facing, hunger. And I don't know about you, but I don't feel like, other than maybe when I was dieting and trying to lose weight, did I ever feel hungry in my life. You know, I, my parents were always able to provide food for me. You know, and, and so I can't imagine having to go hungry. That would be so terrible. And when I was state rep, Jeanette Mott Oxford, who was the executive director of Empower Missouri, challenged us state legislators to try to buy groceries for a family of four on what people get who are on food stamps. So I took the challenge and I 
I decided to go to the grocery store and I can't remember it was it was just a matter of dollars a day that you had to spend to buy food for your family of four. So I made up this little menu of what I would try to buy and I went to the grocery store and guess what? I couldn't buy that menu on what I was going to get from those food stamp dollars. You know, I love fruit. I was able to buy one bag of apples. No grapes, no strawberries. All that stuff was too expensive. Meat, I, ha- I was able to buy like a pound of turkey to make chili for the week. I had to buy stuff like macaroni and cheese, boxed macaroni and cheese, you know, the cheapest brands of everything. I, I was able to buy some potatoes, but it was very limited in terms of what you could buy with the amount of money that they give people for food stamps. And that's what a lot of our kids are living with. And then when I'm down in Jeff City and I hear these crazy legislators talking about, well, these people on food stamps go out and buy steak and lobster. And I'm thinking, if you bought steak or lobster, you would probably not have much money for any food the rest of the week. You know, they just aren't even in touch with reality. So that's one thing. Our kids suffer from hunger. Homelessness is another issue. And that's another thing. I can't imagine being homeless. I was, you know, I always had a roof over my head as a kid. I never had to worry about that. But some of our children actually are homeless. And when I was a counselor at Northeast High School, one girl came to me one day. She was she was 17. And she told me her mom just threw her out of the house. And she had nowhere to go. Um, and at least to me, I knew her pretty well. She was one of the students I worked with, and she was just, I thought, a wonderful girl. And so I had to go that day, find her a place to stay. So fortunately, some of you may be familiar with Restart, and they do take people in. And fortunately, they had a spot for her, and she was able to go stay there the rest of her time. She was a senior, and then um, she was able to go out on her own and get a job and get an apartment. But that's, that's something else our kids deal with is homelessness. So the, the, those are kind of the physical needs of kids, you know, pretty basic, having enough food to eat, having a place to stay. I don't know about you, but I take those things for granted, and I think most of us do. But we have kids and their families who they, they can't take that stuff for granted because they don't have it. So those are things our kids have to deal with. Now, in terms of psychological issues, I'm going to kind of talk about some actual cases I dealt with as students um, when I was in the Kansas City Public Schools. So some kids have to deal with child abuse and child neglect. I had a student, I think she was in her junior year. I'm going to kind of change their name so that I don't reveal any confidentiality. I'm going to call her Sue. And Sue was very smart. And uh, very active. I was another friend and I sponsored the student mediation program at that time. And so um, she was one of our student mediators. She kind of had an anger problem, though, and I couldn't figure out why she had this anger problem because she seemed otherwise so well adjusted. One day, some of the other kids came to me and they said, Mrs. Morgan, something's wrong with Sue. She's just, she won't talk to us. She's just sitting there at lunch. And she's just like kind of almost in a coma. So I went and got her and I brought her to my office and I said, what's going on? And she wouldn't talk to me for a long time. I had to really just really work at it. And finally, she said, Mrs. Morgan, I don't ever want to go home again. I said, well, what's going on at home? She says, 
both of my parents are alcoholics. They don't, they, they, they don't do anything to love us. They don't have food in the house half the time. And she says, I just can't go back there. So I said, okay. I said, um, I'm going to hotline this issue. But she was still, I think she was either 16 at the time, so she still came under the guidelines. So I hotlined it. And the uh, worker was there very quickly and came out and interviewed her at the school. And uh, Sue was very lucky. She had a woman, an older, it was an older woman, but it was like a distant cousin. And the cousin was willing to take her in. So um, Sue was going to go to her house with the caseworker. And she said, Mrs. Morgan, please come with me. And I'm like, I just hotlined your parents. You know, I don't think they're going to be too happy with me. But I said, she says, you've got to come with me and help me. I said, okay, I will, I will come. So I went with her and I stepped into the door at the house and both of her parents were sitting on the couch. And just like she said, they were both like in a stupor. You know, this was like three o'clock in the afternoon and they were just totally drunk. And so she got out of that house she was a very resilient girl, but that's why I figured, finally figured out why she's, this anger was coming out in her. And so she really needed help, you know, and, and uh, fortunately, the cousin took her in. She stayed with her through the rest of high school. She went to college. She came back and stayed with her during college. Her dad died sometime during college. And I said, well, and I kept in touch with her for a long time. And I said, I said, did you go to the funeral when your dad passed away? She said, no. I had no desire to be at my father's funeral because of the way she was treated. So that's what some of our kids have to deal with. Some of them, sometimes kids are really well adjusted, but stuff happens at school that really impacts them. So that's the next story I'm going to tell you about a young man. I'll call him Jeff. And Jeff was um, a kid who started out with a really rough time when he started high school. He was in trouble and, uh, you know, just just didn't seem to be doing good at all. And, but then he got into ROTC and, and I'm really not a very pro-military person, but the ROTC at Northeast High School was not about making little soldiers. They were about providing structure and discipline uh, to kids and helping them be, you know, strong individuals. And so Jeff got into ROTC and he really liked it and he did well. And he also became part of our student mediation program. But one day, we'd, we'd, we had gone through a terrible loss in our school, and a young lady had gotten sick, gone to the hospital. She was just the sweetest girl, and she had some kind of weird, odd heart condition, and she died. So we had lost this one student, and then within a, I think it was the day of her funeral, Jeff went out with three of his friends to Lake Giacomo. They skipped school. You know, all kids do dumb things sometimes. He started drinking. He got in the water. He was a good swimmer. He drowned. Yeah. And I was, I had actually taken a mental health day that day. When te teachers, we call it a mental health day. Sometimes we just have to take a day off and have a rest. I had taken a mental health day. And I got a call from my friend, Dwayne Kelly, who was the uh, person that was a student mediation sponsor with me. And he said, Judy, your boy is, they're looking for his body now. And so he had drowned. So we had lost two kids within one week. So sometimes our students are even who are very well adjusted and have great families that affected the kids at that school. 
because they knew they knew both of these students. They knew the young girl and they knew the young the, the, the young man. So even kids that are very well adjusted sometimes, they have needs that need to be dealt with because of stuff that happens at school. Gun violence is another one. The kids, the gun violence that they have to deal with now, fortunately, we haven't really had like a mass killing in a school, but kids very often lose a friend or they lose a family member to gun violence. Those needs need to be taken care of. Obviously, there's there's drug abuse from both. Sometimes the student himself or herself gets involved in drugs. Sometimes it's their parents. Those kind of needs need to be taken care of. So there's just a really a ton of needs that our kids have, partially brought on by the the uh, the sometimes their families. They, they may care about them, but the families have problems. Sometimes it's the society's problems that are affecting them. But they have many needs. Uh, one one study I read, though, that gave me a lot of hope, said that if a kid has just one significant adult in their lives, it doesn't necessarily, it's great if it's the mom or dad, that's probably best, but if they have any significant adult in their lives, it makes a difference and they will likely do better. So that gives me hope that if we, you know, if every kid has a significant adult, they're probably going to do better in life. So. That's what I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to turn it over to Anne now, who's going to talk about really the wonderful work I think the Children's Service Fund has done. She's been with it since the inception, and uh, we've become friends. And uh, fortunately, we were going to go out one day with another friend, and unfortunately, I was exposed to COVID, and I had to cancel out, but we are going to do it again. So I'm going to turn it over to Anne now. First, let me say, it is awesome to be here, and I have very early memories of this room um, in the 70s when I was involved with American Civil Liberties Union on an ongoing basis, and I said earlier to someone, now a new friend like Judy, that ACLU back then was mostly in Kansas City, Jewish friends of mine, Unitarian friends of mine. John Swamley was a Methodist, and and uh, and Charlotte Thayer's funeral is here. And this was just a place where I felt the people were compassionate, caring, and so my memories continue to this day. And I walk in here, and it's like really kind of old home week. Of course, that's doubly so because Don Dickey is here, <laughs> who is from my earliest memories in life. And I have to say about Judy, um, Judy is like a best friend I never met. I didn't know her. I knew who she was, um, but I didn't know her. And and there's just a, such a such an easy conversation with her. It's like you can talk shorthand and know what you're talking about. Um, my own personal history. Actually, it was very lovely that somebody came in with my brother's book. Thank you very much. He is now a Unitarian in Chicago with his wife um, and and loves it. Um, and so I am grateful that somebody knew my brother's name. Um, so my own personal history, though, beyond ACLU in my early years with Irving Ochtenberg's office, um, is that I eventually became a circuit court judge, served two years on juvenile court as the administrative law judge where you learned so much. 
and you have a greater appreciation of how adult criminal cases and domestic cases play out because you've spent those two years dealing with children and their parents. Um, the, the kids that I worried the most about would probably surprise most people because it really wasn't the kids who had um, what we would say would be a felony if it was an adult, meaning they got they did some really stupid things. And some of them were dangerous, but a lot of them were more petty. The kids that I worried the most about were the kids who were there on the abuse and a, a, abuse and neglect docket, because that's where you saw up close and personal the tragic lives that so many of our children live here in Kansas City. Um, so when I retired, I sent I somebody quoted me, and it was it was a real quote. Quote it wasn't fake news, but somebody quoted me as saying, "Well, if you want to save the world, you've got to do it sometime." And then I got called to join the um, Health Forward Foundation, then Healthcare Healthcare Foundation. Spent I don't know how many years it is. I don't even remember how many years it was. Probably six. And then I term limited out and almost immediately came to the Children's Services Fund. And I did kind of feel like I had a home there um, because the things that mattered to the Children's Services Fund were things that had mattered to me, my brothers, my sister, my, my father, my mother, my grandfather, my, uh, that my family generations goes back well, really, really a long way in terms of caring about children. Um, and whenever you hear that we have a tax reduction in Missouri or nationally and we cut children's programs, just think about what that really means. Um, but fortunately, there is good news with, with the Children's Services Fund, so I'm going to talk about that next. Um, as I hope you all know, in November, y'all voted that we would go from an eight-cent sales tax to a quarter-cent ta sales tax. That means that instead of having 14 to $15 million a year to provide children's services through our partner organizations, we now have up to 30. I will tell you that is a huge responsibility. And from the beginning, we had a board that was composed of people who were dedicated to the programs for children and children's work and the school districts and involved with healthcare. So we had a broad group of really talented people and have continued to have that. And over time, the, the, their talents have changed. But so, so we have had a committed group. We worked very hard to be sure that we avoided the kinds of problems that have been um, discussed in Jackson County and elsewhere about how, how carefully we use our money and how carefully we protect against cronyism and extensive um, overhead kinds of issues. So with that, and I believe we still continue to, to work very, very hard to be sure we spend our money well. I, I want to just briefly say what we do, and then there are a couple of things we don't do. First thing is we deal with children up to 19. That means that we can we include in our programming kids who are aging out of foster care, which in my opinion is one of the very important things that we do. And I will get back to that. And what we can do is crisis intervention, home and community-based intervention, individual group and family counseling, outpatient psychiatric treatment, outpatient substance abuse treatment, prevention, respite care, services to teen parents, temporary shelter, and transitional living. 
that's a lot, but actually they fold into just a few things. A lot of it is about kids who don't have safe place to live. Um, and then, of course, a lot of mental health issues. And that really comprises the bulk of what we do. Um, we cannot provide transportation, which goes to some of the ways that we have shaped our, our programs and who we fund and how we fund. And we can't provide really food. Um, it, so we can't become a food bank, if you will. Um, we, we try to figure out where those ex exact lines are so that if you were like here today, you could have coffee and cookies, something like that. But fundamentally, that's what we live within. And we look at it, I at least look at it fairly regularly because you're always trying to see where is that line of what we can and can't do. The next thing that I wanted to just tell you about what we do with our money. We started in 2018 giving out five, five million, almost six million dollars. And at the beginning, we were trying to figure out how much money we had to protect every year so that if we, we had a sunset clause in our, in our, um, our authorization. But we wanted to be sure that if we ever lost the election, that we would have enough money to finish the promises that we had made to people in terms of what we would do. We no longer have a sunset. That for us is very important. It means we can plan farther in the advance and that the programs that we fund can plan farther in advance. Huge change. It also means we don't have to spend money on another campaign, which is very expensive, um, to have the, the fund renewed, the tax for the fund renewed. Since up to 2021, we had given out $47 million. And if you include the money we have committed now, it's over $60 million. We have accounted as carefully as we can for that money. We look at where the money is going. We actually look at, we have, we have to cover the county, get to cover the county. Every part of the county has different needs. We try to be sure that we, every time we do funding, that we've looked at where our services are extending to make sure that we are not focused solely on one or two or three parts of the county. And that's one of the reasons that we have had the requirement that we have um, representatives from across the county. How that's going to continue to play out, we don't know, because it's interesting what happened when we had the change of the boundary lines in the county um, that affect us. Um, the next thing is what we say, and this is something we've been working on recently, what is our community impact framework? What do we see it as being? Impact of prevention, which I want to come back to, resilience, and community. Community, I'm going to start at the end and then go back. Community means we're trying to build the infrastructure of the nonprofit community the infrastructure for getting services provided. And tell me when I need to change from my comments to questions, because I know that comes at some point. If you tell me, I won't have to worry about it. How's that? I got it. Resilience is helping, helping kids and families who've had a crisis to be resilient, to be able to, to, to move forward effectively. And part of it goes to and I see some overlap between prevention and resilience, and that's an ever-changing um, definition, I think. We used to see prevention as being you prevent something that hasn't happened yet, if you will. That's obvious. Um, now we see it as preventing 
the outcome of something that may already have happened. Preventing the outcome that if you've been in an abusive environment or had an abusive incident, that you're more able to avoid having something like long-term significant post-traumatic stress disorder, if you will. Does that, that make sense? I mean, we're trying to be sure kids are able to be protected, prevented, from having the worst outcomes from the situations they've been in. Resilience, as you can tell, is very similar, at least in my regard. Resilience is moving forward, moving forward after maybe you have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So they're, they're, they're interlapping, but what we're trying to do is prevent kids from having worst out kids, supporting kids so that they have the best incomes in outcomes in their lives, short-term and longer-term, that they can have. Um, I, a couple of things that I, and I, I, there are two or three ways I can approach this, so with my 12 minutes. I want to ask um, if y'all are, are familiar with the Adverse Childhood Experiences Revised Questionnaire. Is anybody who understands what it is? Okay. The, it's the ACEs test. Um, three, four years ago, the ACEs test was just at its beginnings, it was mostly used for, for adults. Now the ACE test, which is really an amazing test, it's very short, it asks these kinds of questions. Do you feel you don't have enough to eat? You wear dirty clothes? You don't have anybody to take care of you? Do you have a parent that you lost through a divorce, um, abandonment, death, or other reason? Do you live with somebody who's depressed? Do your parents ever pitch, hit, punch, beat, or threaten to harm each other or to harm you? Did a parent in your house ever physically hurt you? So this is, it's really so short, but if you use this and in four or five years, it's become so important in terms of how we deal with children and how we relate to how we're funding children's programs. Because you take 10 questions or seven or five, depending upon which version of it is, take these 10 questions and you say, this is the likelihood that this child has had significant adverse experiences that help us to understand how to guide their treatment. Um, I asked my daughter to complete this and the only one she had was divorce. And I'm like, so sorry, but you are in the really, really lucky percentage of kids to have one. But if you have more than three or four, then you have serious issues that we know better than we used to how to address them, as do our programs. When we started, we had too many programs who didn't really know what best practices meant in terms of providing care. And through all kinds of training programs, not necessarily by us, and the way that we shape our grant applications, partnership application. People are becoming more sophisticated in terms of how we deal with identifying how we move forward. So all of those things are good. COVID, and I'm going to only talk about this for two minutes, COVID became both a horrible circumstance for us and our partners, and in some ways a blessing. The bad things are all the things we know about. These partner organizations lost the ability to treat children in person. They lost, they didn't have, and we didn't have adequate technology. Thank you for the person who's dealing with the technology today. But, and they, they lost the ability to be sure that they had enough money, and some of them really were at risk of going under. Probably some have gone on, on under. 
But as a result of COVID, at least our organization and others I know, we had special meetings and say, what do you need most during COVID? And the things that we did was we helped stabilize them financially through periods of time that they had to be able to pay staff, even though they were looking to figure out how to protect kids rather than to have them generate that money through federal programs or other sources of money. And we really did change the, the dynamic of uh, technology. So most of the organizations, and again, including ours, have much better access to technology. I want to talk, but so that's COVID in a nutshell. Good, bad, but at the end of the day, we do have some really, really good programs that are responsive not only to COVID, but to saving time of parents and children in terms of being able to access everything on technology if they can and if it's suitable, rather than having to drive back and forth from place to place to place to get services. So I want to talk about school-based mental health, number one, uh, number one because school-based mental health is changing dramatically in the last six years, maybe. When I was involved with the Health Forward Foundation, we all of a sudden started seeing more discussion about why school-based programming is critically important to using money better, using resources of people better, and being able to give kids the opportunity to provide receive services where they are already comfortable. They're comfortable at school. They're comfortable probably in the counselor's office. They're comfortable with their teachers. They're much more receptive to services in a school environment than they may be someplace else. And actually, I will tell you that when I was at juvenile court, I was amazed how many kids were very comfortable in detention because they were safe. <laughs> they were safe. They had food. They had health care. So there were good things about detention, even though it is certainly not the ideal situation. So I really was, um, I was open to the idea of school-based programs being so expensive. So, so important to us. So how can you use school-based programs and how do we use school-based programs? Well, first, as I've said, we use school-based programs mostly to provide mental health and, and, and training with regard to mental health. We do it in an environment where they can, as I said, receive more programming in a shorter amount of time in a safe place. All good things. But it's mental health we provide there. We don't provide the food. We, as I said, we can't provide transportation. So we limit the need for them to have transportation. And then while we don't, I am not, a, we have a number of programs that are school-based, just so you know, public schools and private schools um, and charter schools. Um, but we also um, find that even if our programs in the schools are not directly related to homelessness, as Judy discussed, teachers are able to identify and counselors are able to identify who does have a problem with, with homelessness. And so they, through other programs, not necessarily our own, though obviously some of it through our own programming, are able to be sure that more kids are safely in housing. And then I go to the other piece of this, which is foster kids and kids who are on the street. And we find 
and this is sad and it's I, it is something that is truly frustrating to me is that kids who are in foster care age out they lose services they then are so vulnerable to being homeless and there are increasing programs and again this is in the last 3 4 years that this has really expanded is working with kids who are aging out of foster care to be sure that they have more services available to them, that they have more training on how to have an apartment, how to do a budget. So we are truly trying to work with fosters. Um, I am sad that in the foster program, we don't have directly more impact in terms of these kids as they age out. But again, that is becoming, through our programs, other school programs, something that is more um, acknowledged as a serious issue. So I'm trying to go back. Now I want to go back and see what it is that I have not talked about that you would want me to talk about. Oh, yes, two minutes. United Way and um, Health, Health Forward Foundation have both changed to some extent the way in which they are providing services. I bet you that at least one or two people in this room know more about that than I do. But it also means that we have to look at them, what they're doing, so that we are trying to be sure at some level we can look at what programs they're no longer going to fund and see which of those programs may be are appropriately funded by the Children's Services Fund. So, at the end of the day, what matters the most is, number one, we use our money well. Number two, we gain over time a better understanding as to how to serve these people better, more effectively. Um, and number three, that our children in Kansas City and Jackson County have better short-term and long-term outcomes. So with that, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. And we're going to have uh, questions and answers. You are listening to the All Souls Forum on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Ann Messley and Judy Morgan. They are on the board of Jackson County Children's Services Fund. Uh, and we'll talk about how the fund and its partners combine care, connections, and creativity to provide hope against child poverty, abuse, neglect, uh, by promoting children's mental health and social emotional well-being. A very important subject. And we're going to have uh, questions and answers. I have a question about uh, vision. Um, my experience with a young man uh, that was that qualified for some of the issues you discussed, uh, his, one of his primary problems was he couldn't see well. And his parents had no funds or desire to even help him solve that problem. And so uh, we and my family was able to help him. 
but without without is there are there programs to to address some specific issues like vision because once we got his vision corrected uh his life got significantly better i think with regard to special issues like that where you're saying the issue is once his vision was corrected his outcomes were better we don't provide those services now the hospitals provide some of those services and we would provide and i have to i'm thinking and i don't know what all of the programs do provide we provide mental health services including at some level to kids with some disabilities but i cannot tell you as i stand here that i know whether we have anybody who specifically has programs for kids who have vision issues or hearing issues because those would be mental health programs not equipment or diagnosis from doctors kinds of monies it's the best answer i can give i'm not sure which speaker this would pertain to but do we have enough counselors in the schools in jackson county not only Kansas City public schools but also the private and charter schools in order to assess and assist our students well it's it's um it's been a while since i've been a counselor in the Kansas City public schools but i think it's probably still similar and i think the answer is no there are not enough counselors to actually take care of the kinds of needs that we've been talking about Unfortunately, counselors often um, end up doing a lot of administrative work, uh, scheduling of classes, and there's never enough time, at least I felt as a counselor, to actually attend to the, the needs of the kids in terms of the gun violence and drug abuse and sexual, you know, the child abuse and some of the other things we're talking about. So we definitely need more counselors and more social workers in the schools. And I would guess that the ratio for counselors is the same throughout the state, like at the, at the high school level or at the uh, secondary level. When I was a counselor, I think it was one to like 400 or something like that. So, um, and it was even bigger at the elementary school. A lot of elementary counselors actually had several schools they serviced. So they would be at one school two days a week and one school three days a week. So, uh, and that was throughout that those numbers throughout the whole state. So, yes, we definitely need more counselors. But like Anne was saying, actually having the Children's Service Fund uh, programs in the schools, that is really helpful, very helpful, because those programs can help some of these needs of the kids. Um, when you describe the ACEs test, I was reminded about how when I have an appointment with my doctor, I think every time I go in, they give me a Medicare questionnaire. Uh, do I feel safe? So it makes me wonder, when do you administer the ACEs test? And then there's a second question. I imagine kids who really have big problems, some of those would be reluctant to even admit, admit on that test that they were being harmed or what. So could you just tell us more? about the use of the ACEs test? I don't know the answer to that question. I will tell you that as the organization, our partner organizations are, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say universally more sophisticated, that's not for, fair, but as the ACEs test has become more um, better known, 
more often utilized, then more of these agencies are using it and talking about it. So it is not something that is universal across the board. It's certainly not something that the schools do. Um, but it is a it is a major tool. I mean, even if you don't administer the test, you would look at the test. If, if you're now familiar with it, you'd look at the test and ask questions generically on those same subjects. But really, you're more likely, almost, almost certainly, you're, you're going to only use that test when you have a reason to administer the test to a child. So that if you know that this kid is having this kid is having trouble, you may you'd be likely to have a counselor that would say, "Okay, what is what does the ACE test say that I need to be looking at here?" Ad, um, adverse childhood experiences. Uh, but you're right. I think some I think some children and certainly some adults would not be comfortable giving accurate information. I have to admit that I left social work 30 plus years ago um, and I was on the Kansas side. So I'm interested to know, because I still live there, whether there's a parallel organization at all in Johnson or Wyandotte that I have not become aware of and how they dovetail with other organizations in that area. Actually, the the, the, the Children's Service Fund is... Um, Grounded in Missouri statute, so, and I don't, I really don't know if Kansas has any kind of similar um, legislation that sets up funds like this. So uh, I, I haven't heard of anything like that, but I'm not absolutely sure if Kansas actually does that. Right, do, do you know maybe? Yes, yes, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah, there's, um, I think what, there's eight or nine counties in Missouri. The way the statute was set up, each county, there's 114 counties in uh, Missouri, and St. Louis City is a city, but it counts as a county. And uh, any one of those 114 counties, if they so choose, can place an issue on the ballot uh, to use sales tax money, just like Ann says, it's not, can't be property tax money, or it has to be sales tax money. And then um, there is a limit, I believe one, a quarter cent is the maximum. Yeah, I believe. And when, and, um, when the Jackson County first put it on the ballot in 2016, it was an eighth of a cent. And then we just approved with your, with the voters approval to take it up to a quarter of a cent. I'd like to add that that initiative passed by 74% in Jackson County. It was huge. And it was, I believe it was bipartisan because um, some of our campaign workers that were going out knocking on doors, you know, we had some people doing door knocking and they would see a Republican sign in a yard. But when they would knock on the door, that person would say, yes, I'm voting for the Children's Service Fund. So we did have bipartisan support. And then there's like, I think St. Charles County has it in on the St. Louis side. And uh, uh, what are your early childhood education efforts? Well, in terms of the, the children's, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ann, but the Children's Service Fund does not necessarily deal with specific academics, but I'm sure that there are programs in early childhood program. I mean, there might be programs funded by the Children's Service Fund that go into some of the early childhood programs. We don't fund education and we don't fund literacy, which is, but we do fund programs that surround those 
the education and, and that surround some of these core needs of children that are not within our parameters. Mental health, as I said, mental health, um, uh, homelessness, those sorts of things. We can partner with other organizations. I have a question. Uh, Ann, I was so impressed by the all the um, experience you're gaining with uh, helping these children um, over the last several years. And I'm wondering, uh, is there a means by which your organization and the, your partner groups are um, perhaps writing papers and putting out somehow ex uh, sharing this information in general terms with other uh, groups like you, county service organizations or other private? In other words, is this experience you're getting uh, expanding the knowledge about how to help abuse children? I'm not sure. There's a couple of ways to approach that. Number one is it's our partners who are gaining the bulk of the knowledge. I mean, I feel like I have a lot more knowledge than I did, but it, but it is a goal of ours to be sure that the partners we work with and the other community agencies are becoming smarter and spreading their knowledge. Does that help? Yes. Is there a means uh, where you could use some of your funding to uh, facilitate that? Uh, and I'm not talking about just within the Kansas City metro area, but all around the country. Is there is there a way to fund uh, the spreading of this knowledge? Because I think it's so crucial. I don't think we can fund anything that goes outside of Jackson County in terms of doing research and papers, because that takes that takes staff time to do that anywhere. But we can facilitate meetings of our partners and other service providers. And that's one of the things that is on our plate is looking at how that can be done, how it can be funded, and what our role can be in that. Yeah, Claudine asks, um, is there a difference between the services that could be provided for public school students and private school students? with the evidence of the more private schools developing in the area? Not that I can think of. I, I mean, um, we have a requirement that, um, hmm. I'm, I'm sorry, I hate to think while you're on your YouTube, but we we do have a requirement that we be an equal provider. And so beyond that, I'm not sure. And we, as I said, we do have programs in the public and the charter schools. I think we've got at least one program in the private schools. They can't impose religious expectations on recipient of funds. Just like at juvenile court, we couldn't, we couldn't have religious requirements for, for uh, our, the recipient of juvenile court funds. Does that help? Um, how do you evaluate, what are we, Spencer Graves is asking, how do you evaluate the success of the program you fund? I'm not, I'm not sure if we mentioned this, but this is, a, I think, a, an important part of the funding. Um, a lot of times when, uh, you know, different things are funded, it goes through a grant. So uh, an organization asks for the funding and they get all their money up front. This is a reimbursement model. So that means that the the 
the different organizations and community agencies that are getting funding, they actually have to submit their invoices, you know, and, and tell what they've been doing before they get reimbursed. So I think that is one way that helps in terms of evaluating. We're actually getting really constant feedback through those invoices of what they're doing. And we do have, uh, I believe we have two program evaluators now that work very closely with the community agencies that go in and meet with them and check up on how things are doing and making sure that they are following through with what they say they're going to follow through on. And then with the expanded funding that we are getting due to the the increase in the sales tax, we will be able to hire um, more individuals, you know, because we will be able to service more organizations. So I think we will be hiring at least another, you know, with some more staff to help with that. So that's one way I think, or two ways I think we do evaluations of the programs. Okay, I'll just make a quick comment. I thought the 74% of Jackson County voters approved this increase. That's amazing. That's, that says a lot of good about Jackson County. I'm not sure I understood the question, but I, um, that would make the data available to the Missouri Sunshine rules. Is that what Well, pre pretty much. It is something we have to be really careful about. You know, in the, it, it's pretty, it, the law is pretty detailed, and, um, and I've had discussion about how we do comply. We have to, I mean, there are a number of things we have to do. There are very few things that we can keep um, in closed meetings, things like personnel discussion. Um, but, but we are accountable. You can come to us. You can get our minutes. You can get our agendas. You can go on our website for just about any information you want. Um, and I know I've had conversations with Lou about how the sunshine law plays out naturally far as I'm concerned, one of the benefits of a group like this is it's like, hey, we're talking to people and and we are providing general information that anybody can have access to. So so we are we are strident about our compliance with the Sunshine Law. If you haven't looked at the Children's Service Fund website, I, I really think it's a good website and you can find out a lot of information. And I, and the meetings are open. We do have uh, guests there. I think every meeting, I, I've only been on the board since July, but I think, and we meet monthly, every meeting, I think we've had guests. Sometimes they are the the people from the agencies who like to be there, but anybody's welcome. There's always a, you know some chairs set up for, for guests if anybody wants to attend our meetings. And the meetings are all posted on the website, I'm pretty sure. I think that they're, but okay, they might, they might be, it seems like, but anyway, so yeah, so it's, it's really, uh, it's really, uh, I mean, I've been on a lot of boards and I really am very impressed with the way this board works. Okay. We're just about out of time. I want to uh, advise that next week, uh, we're going to have uh, Ryan Sorrell who is the founder of the Kansas City Defender. And he's going to speak on the role of radical black media in the future of... Uh, so thanks a lot for coming to the forum. I thought it went very well.
Thank you for tuning in to the All Souls Forum. Keep your radio dialed to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio, for your Jazz Afternoon with KC, coming up immediately. Followed by The Boogie Bridge with Jason Vivoni, and then the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. In the meantime, have a great day. Music